Chapter Five of the Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. Chapter Five: The Centenary of a Question. One. It is exactly a hundred years ago this month since Sidney Smith asked, Who reads an American book? This struck most Americans of 1820 as a most insulting question. It immediately aroused a riot of angry answers from all sorts and conditions of men, and it has unceasingly reverberated through the columns of our literary periodicals in every year of all the hundred since it was originally uttered. But after a century, the tumult and the shouting dies, and it ought to be possible for an American of 1920 to consider this famous query with disinterestedness, if not with detachment. It may even be profitable, now that there have been more than five score years of peace between us and our kin across the sea, to consider this query calmly in order to discover all the circumstances of its asking and even to inquire honestly whether there may not have been at least a little justification for it. Sidney Smith edited the first number of the Edinburgh Review in 1802. He had proposed this periodical as an organ for the group of young men who were keenly dissatisfied with the complacent Toryism which defended a heterogeny of old abuses, and he continued to be a constant contributor to its liberalizing pages for a quarter of a century in spite of his exile to a remote Yorkshire parish. So vigorous were the assaults of the Edinburgh on these abuses that the quarterly review was soon founded by the stern and unbending Tories in order that the Whig dog should not have the best of it, to borrow Dr. Johnson's characteristic phrase. From its beginning, the quarterly took a most offensive attitude toward America and often exploded in violent vituperation and from its beginning the Edinburgh had been far more friendly toward us, as might have been expected from a review started by young and ardent reformers who could not fail to recognize that many of the political improvements they were advocating in Great Britain had already been obtained in the United States. In the Edinburgh Review for January 1920 there is a criticism of Adam Siebert's Statistical Annals of the United States, published in Philadelphia in 1818. It was unsigned, like all other articles, in accord with the custom that contributions to periodicals should be anonymous, but we now know it was written by Sidney Smith. It extends to only eleven pages, ten of which are devoted to an abstract of the mass of facts and figures in Siebert's quarto. The tone of the reviewer was benevolent, and it was with kindly appreciation that he transcribed the record of American expansion and prosperity. It was with brotherly sympathy that he warned us that the inevitable consequences of a nation's fondness for martial glory are taxes upon every article which enters into the mouth or covers the back or is placed under foot, taxes upon everything which it is pleasant to see, hear, feel, smell, or taste, taxes on everything on earth and the waters under the earth. It is not too much to say that the friendliness of the first ten pages of this criticism is really remarkable when we recall that it was written less than five years after the termination of what we call the War of 1812, and after the defeat of the British in the Battle of New Orleans. Only on the eleventh and last page of Sidney Smith's paper 
could the most thin skins of perfidied patriots find anything in any way offensive to our national susceptibility the sting was in the tail of it in the concluding paragraphs wherein we americans were warned not to allow ourselves to be persuaded by orders or newspapers into the belief that we were the greatest the most refined the most enlightened and the most moral people on earth and in which we were told that the effect of this journalistic boasting upon a european was unspeakably ludicrous for although the americans are a brave industrious and acute people they had hitherto given no indications of genius this general statement was almost immediately supported by the specific allegation that during our forty years of independence we had done absolutely nothing for the sciences for the arts for literature or even for the statesmanlike studies of politics or political economy then sydney smith called the bead-roll of the orders scientists theologians scholars poets actors and artists who had illuminated the same two score years in great britain whereupon he asked if there were american parallels to these british worthies this inquiry was followed by that rattling volley of pointed questions which has come echoing down the corridors of time in the four quarters of the globe who reads an american book or goes to an american play or looks at an american picture or statue what does the world yet owe to american physicians or surgeons what new substances have their chemists discovered or what old ones have they analyzed what new constellations have been discovered by the telescopes of americans what have they done in mathematics who drinks out of american glasses or eats from american plates or sleeps in american blankets and the paper concluded with the remark that americans would do well to keep clear of superlatives of self-praise until these questions were fairly and favorably answered two if this battery of pertinent queries were to be fired point-blank at the americans of nineteen twenty we should not wince for we could very well leave to others the finding of full and favorable answers but when it was discharged in eighteen twenty we were bitterly annoyed our national vanity was painfully wounded that national vanity which was then unduly inflated because it was distended rather by our ethereal hopes for the future than sustained by our solid accomplishments in the past we were swollen with pride in what we were going to do we were uneasily conscious of our manifest destiny and we were inclined to be vocal in flaunting our virtues even if we did not actually assert that we were the greatest the most refined the most enlightened and the most moral people on earth the period of our history from the adoption of the constitution in seventeen eighty nine to the year when sidney smith punctured our complacency with his saw-toothed interrogatory is not a period upon which we can to-day look back at with complete satisfaction it was an epoch of jangling party strife of occasional rebellion and of threatened secession it was an era of geographical expansion and of intermittent prosperity we were spreading abroad toward the south and the west we were sending our ships to all the ports of all the seven seas and we were beginning to manufacture most of the things we needed the airy hopes of a hundred years ago have been more or less justified in the course of the century but these early aspirations were only too often expressed in material terms in the statistics of commerce in the balance of trade in dollars and cents we looked forward to mere bigness of the body politic rather than to true greatness of the soul it cannot have been on a day very far distant from that of sydney smith's question when john quincy adams made a speech at new bedford 
in which he reckoned the number of whale ships sailing out of the port and compared it with that of an earlier year taking this as a type of american success lowell from whom i borrow the illustration made the apt comment that it is with quite another oil that those far shining lamps of a nation's true glory which burn forever must be filled it is not by any amount of material splendor or prosperity but only by moral greatness by ideas by works of imagination that a race can conquer the future of carthage whose merchant fleets furled their sails in every port of the known world nothing is left but the deeds of hannibal but how large is the space occupied in the maps of the soul by little athens it was great by the soul and its vital force is as indestructible as the soul now in 1920 we have good reason to believe that we possess sufficient of this vital force to save our soul since after drugged and doubting years we came at last into the world war in defense of civilization but what was our state in 1820 that we possessed this vital force a hundred years ago is only a hypothesis supported by meagre evidence we can afford to be honest with ourselves today and if we have the courage to look the fact in the face we must confess that our forefathers of a century ago could not answer sydney smith's question fairly and favorably in fact one reason why this sharp thrust caused us such acute suffering was that we could not parry it and that it went home whatever may be the case in nineteen twenty there is no denying that in eighteen twenty nobody was going to an american play or looking at an american statue or picture our physicians and surgeons had done nothing to relieve human suffering our astronomers had discovered no new constellations and our chemists no new substances it is true that if sydney smith had asked for our inventions as well as for our discoveries we could have put in an answer and called attention to the lightning rod to the cotton gin and to the steamboat and even to the torpedo and to the submarine although none of us could have foreseen to what devilish use these devices would be put in the course of time and it is true also that we could bring forward the federalist as a statesmanlike study of politics but sidney smith was not a prophet and he could not foresee the influence which alexander hamilton was to exert upon the founders of the australian and south african federations if we continue to be honest we shall have to admit that our forefathers would have been hard put to find a fair and favorable answer because the books of american authorship which had been published before he insisted on this exacerbating question and which are read to-day by other than professed students of our literary history are very few indeed no one of us is now ashamed to acknowledge that he is not familiar with joel barlow's columbiad or with timothy dwight's conquest of canaan those magniloquent epics deliberately composed to supply a mighty nation with poems commensurate with its magnitude there is the federalist but that had served its immediate purpose and not even here in the united states did anybody suspect that it was to be revered as a permanent storehouse of political wisdom there was franklin's autobiography but this was not printed from his own manuscript until eighteen sixty eight although a truncated french translation had been published in paris in seventeen ninety one from which an English version had been made about a score of years later. Irving's Knickerbocker had been published in 1809, but eleven years later it had not yet been republished in England, and although a few copies of it had crossed the Atlantic, Sidney Smith could not be fairly charged with knowledge of its existence. Irving's sketchbook began to be issued in New York in parts in 1819, but the last of these did not appear until 1820, when the complete book was republished in London, where it was cordially received 
the Edinburgh Review for August 1820, containing a most friendly criticism. The first collection of Bryant's poems did not appear until 1821, when Irving was instrumental in arranging for a British edition. And it was also in 1820 that Fenimore Cooper published The Spy, to be followed in the next five years by The Pilot and by The Last of the Mohicans. Thus we perceive that when Sidney Smith asked his question, American literature was just about to be born, and that if he had asked it five or ten years later, there would have been no difficulty in supplying the fair and favorable answer. What we need to see clearly is that American literature had not really come into being in 1820, however lustily it was to stretch its infant limbs in the decade immediately following. 3. The first thirty-seven years of our independence, from 1783 to 1820, were years of literary penury, and they stand in startling contrast with the literary wealth which had been accumulated in Great Britain during this period, which was the epoch of Romantic Revival. It was the era of a fresh outflowering of English poetry, high-colored and full-blooded, startlingly different from the paler prose which had been the product of the first three-quarters of the eighteenth century. The Kilmarnock collection of Burns had appeared in 1786, and the lyrical ballads of Wordsworth and Coleridge in 1798. Scott's Lay of the Last Minstrel had come out in 1805, Coleridge's Crystal Bell in 1806, and Wordsworth's Poems in 1807. Byron's Child Herald began to appear in 1812, Shelley's Queen Mab was issued in 1813, and the poems of Keats were published in 1817. Perhaps Sidney Smith would have been kinder if he had refrained from the infliction of futile anguish upon his American friends, but it ought to be evident now that he had good warrant for the question he asked. It was pointed, but it was also to the point. He may have been ungenerous, but he was not unjust. He may have been moved not by playful malice, but rather by an honest desire to make us see ourselves as others saw us. He may very well have believed himself to be not a foe stabbing at a helpless victim, but a friend wielding a scalpel which would relieve us of the tumor of vainglory i make this suggestion ironic rather than ironic with the more confidence because there is in the very next number of the edinburgh review that for april eighteen twenty an article which must have been written by sidney smith and which testifies to the honest desire of the english liberals to keep on the best terms with the young republic on the far side of the western ocean it is a review of an American book published in Philadelphia in 1819, written by a certain Robert Walsh, otherwise unknown to fame, and entitled An Appeal from the Judgments of Great Britain Respecting the United States of America. I have never seen the book itself, but from Sidney Smith's frequent and abundant quotations, it appears to have been a heated protest against the British writers who were then engaged in virulent disparagement of America. These writers were most of them Tories of the strictest sect, and they vented their venom on us month after month in Blackwoods and quarter after quarter in the Quarterly. What Sidney Smith sought to accomplish in the review of this book was to convince Americans that this malignant torrent flowed only from Tory poems, and that it had never disgraced the pages of the Edinburgh Review. He called attention to the fact that the Edinburgh itself had come in for its portion of the abuse which the author of An Appeal seemed to think reserved exclusively for America, and, what is a little remarkable, for being too much her advocate. He insisted that the Edinburgh had spoken far more good of America than ill, that in nine cases out of ten, where we have mentioned her, it has been for praise, 
and in all that is essential or of serious importance we have spoken nothing but good while our censures have been wholly confined to matters of inferior note and generally accompanied with an apology for their existence and a prediction of their speedy disappearance he quoted a passage from an article in an early number of the edinburgh in which the assertion was made that the americans had shown an abundance of talent wherever inducements had been held out for its exertion that their party pamphlets were written with great keenness and spirit and that their orators frequently displayed a vehemence correctness and animation that would win the admiration of any european audience and in his final paragraph he declared that his article may contain things requiring explanation and things liable to misconstruction but nevertheless the spirit in which it is written however cannot we think be misunderstood we cannot descend to little cavils and altercations and have no leisure to maintain a controversy about words and phrases we have an unfeigned respect for the free people of america and we mean honestly to pledge ourselves for that of the better part of this country surely this is frank and manly and straightforward as sydney smith was himself surely there is nothing here to offend the susceptibilities of the most sensitive and most thin-skinned of americans on any unprejudiced survey we must exonerate sydney smith and the edinburgh review of a century ago from any ill-will toward the united states and from any sympathy with the tory attacks upon us that these assaults were incessant not only in eighteen twenty but for the following fifty years all americans are aware that they did immeasurable mischief is notorious and it is also probable that they were in part responsible for the occasional dislike of great britain which was unfortunately disclosed when we at last decided to enter the great war in alliance with the nation with which we had raged the war of independence and the war of eighteen twelve bismarck was never shrewder than when he pointed out that every country is held at some time to account for the windows broken by its press the bill is presented some day or other in the form of hostile sentiment in the other country and this hostile sentiment has often proved itself to be the most potent of those imponderables which bismarck always valued highly it is interesting to note that washington irving had in effect anticipated this pregnant remark of bismarck's in one of the earliest of the numbers in which the sketch-book begins to appear in eighteen nineteen there is a paper entitled english writers on america which opens with a significant sentence it is with feelings of deep regret that i observe the literary animosity daily growing up between england and america that irving himself had been bitterly aggrieved by the abuse lavished on the united states by the quarterly review was shown two or three years later after the sketch-book had established his reputation he declined an offer of a hundred pounds for a contribution to the quarterly he was in sore need of money but he felt that it would be unworthy in him to appear in the pages of a periodical which had shown itself unscrupulously malignant towards his country while the opening sentence of his friendly essay is significant as i have pointed out perhaps a later passage is even more deserving of quotation here possessing as england does the fountain-head whence the literature of the language flows how completely is it in her power and how truly is it her duty to make it a medium of amiable and magnanimous feeling a stream where the two nations might meet together and drink in peace and kindness should she however persist in turning it to waters of bitterness the time may come when she may repent of her folly she may look back with regret at her infatuation in repulsing from her side a nation she might have grappled to her bosom and thus destroying her only chance for real friendship beyond the boundaries of her own dominion january nineteen twenty 
End of chapter 5